First You Think is a not-for-profit ministry of the First Unitarian Church of Des Moines. Support us at ucdsm.org today. I submit to you that two words name a large part of the richness and goodness of life. Grace and solidarity. Grace, the freely given unmerited gifts you did not earn and do not deserve, cannot deserve, like being alive, like being more or less healthy, healthy enough and pain-free enough to be able to be here or listening online right now, like air and the feel of breath in your lungs, like sunlight and rain, trees, the beauty of the seasons, autumn leaves, winter snow, spring, summer. You didn't earn these things. You've done nothing to deserve them. They are free gifts, grace. You might not notice them, but a life of richness and depth is one that is constantly seeing grace everywhere, the beauty all around us. And second, solidarity. We are not just in it for ourselves. We're in this together. We're in it for each other. What else? Camaraderie, companionship, friendship, all the different ways we are in relationship, all the different forms that love takes. This is the goodness of life. If grace and solidarity name a large part of what makes life good, then it behooves us to attend to whatever undermines the place in our lives of grace and solidarity. These days, the growing overemphasis on merit, on deservingness, undermines the place in our lives of grace and solidarity. Merit, that would be Ability plus hard work, or talent plus effort, or capability plus motivation, or other synonyms. We use merit as best we can assess it to determine who gets into the top schools and who gets the high-paying, high-status jobs. There's a lot of competition for school admissions and for jobs. Now, there will always be a place for competition. I am not going to stand here on Super Bowl Sunday and say that we should or ever could abolish competition. (laughs) And we aren't going to abolish the rewards of victory. But the winners have been way over-rewarded and the losers way over-deprived. And we need to lower the stakes for that part of life that is a meritocratic contest. We just need to lower the stakes of the merit contests because as those stakes have been growing, they've been crowding out grace from our lives, crowding out solidarity. Last week, I talked about distributive justice, how since 1980, we've been distributing more and more of the wealth to fewer and fewer of the richer and richer, and that's unjust. A more just distribution, a greater income equality, 
is essential for social health, for our flourishing as a people. And today I want to add to the picture contributive justice, the justice of everyone being able to meaningfully contribute to our city, our state, our nation, our world. Contributive justice. Those who have been deemed not to have the merit to get into the good schools, or indeed those who maybe don't want to go to college, need jobs they can feel contribute to something more meaningful than a paycheck. Michael Sandel, writing in The Tyranny of Merit, says of the meritocratic ethic, among the winners, it generates hubris, among the losers, humiliation and resentment. These moral sentiments are at the heart of the political uprising against elites. More than a protest against immigrants and outsourcing, the populist complaint is about the tyranny of merit, and the complaint is justified. The relentless emphasis on creating a fair meritocracy in which social positions reflect effort and talent has a corrosive effect on the way we interpret our success or the lack of it. The meritocratic ethic produces a smug conviction of those who land on top that they deserve their fate and that those on the bottom deserve theirs too. For those on the bottom, the meritocratic ethic means either frustration or humiliation and despair. Either they believe that the system fails to recognize their merit and denies them opportunities to use it, Or perhaps worse, they accept that meritocratic sorting has been more or less fair and they just aren't good enough to have earned any better than they got. The grip of the meritocratic ethic has been growing through the World War II era. The word meritocracy was coined by the British sociologist Michael Young in his 1958 book, The Rise of the Meritocracy. Young described meritocracy as a dystopia. When he wrote in 1958, the British class system had been breaking down for some time. The old aristocracy had been giving way to a system of educational and professional advancement based on merit. And in many ways, this was a good thing. Gifted children of the working class could develop their talents and escape from a life of manual labor. But the old system at least had the weird advantage that everybody knew it was unfair. Neither the lords nor the working class believed they deserved their status, which tempered the arrogance of the upper class and precluded despair for the laborers. The working class knew their their situation wasn't their fault. Michael Young wrote his book from an imagined position in the year 2033, projecting out 75 years, three generations, into the future from 1958. That's how long he figured it would take for meritocracy to lead to a mass revolt. He wrote, describing things in the year 2033, 
Now that people are classified by ability, the gap between the classes has inevitably become wider. The upper classes are no longer weakened by self-doubt and self-criticism. Today, the eminent know that success is just reward for their own capacity, for their own efforts, and for their own undeniable achievement. They deserve to belong to a superior class. They know, too, that not only are they of higher caliber to start with, but that a first-class education has been built upon their native gifts. Meanwhile, the losers in the meritocracy are resentful at the arrogance of the winners, while also humiliated with the knowledge that they have no one to blame but themselves. Today, all persons, however humble, know they have had every chance. Are they not bound to recognize that they have an inferior status, not as in the past because they were denied opportunity, but because they are inferior? For the first time in human history, the inferior man has no ready buttress for his self-regard. End quote. Michael Young's tale from 1958 predicted that the less educated classes would then rise up in a populist revolt against meritocratic values. We can now say that the revolt that Young predicted came 17 years ahead of schedule. It came in 2016 when Britain voted for Brexit and America voted for Trump. While Democratic candidates and many Republicans were intoning that everybody ought to be able to go as far as their talent and hard work could take them, Trump never said that. His fans knew that the meritocratic game cast them as the losers, that their work no longer had much dignity or even afforded much of a living wage any longer. Their feelings of both humiliation and resentment proved potent. If the game being played on the field is one that inherently has winners and losers, then leveling the playing field does nothing to revitalize civic life, does nothing to foster a sense that we're in this together, does nothing to shore up solidarity. Indeed, the more level the playing field, the more the winners may feel justified in their arrogance and the greater the humiliation of the losers. Sandel brings us back to grace and solidarity. He writes, a perfect meritocracy banishes all sense of gift or grace. It diminishes our capacity to see ourselves as sharing a common fate. It leaves little room for the solidarity that can arise when we reflect on the contingency of our talents and our fortunes. This is what makes merit a kind of tyranny or unjust rule. We'll always have some competitions. We'll want to make those playing fields level and fair. But when we make the levelness of the playing field the only concern, we forget that public life isn't entirely about the competition. It's also about recognizing that we're in this together. It's about standing as equals with each other as neighbors, engaged in the work of citizenship, whether we are legal citizens or not. It's not all about standing as competitors. And we'll pause there for our interlude. As meritocracy has grown increasingly emphasized, the greater our inequalities of income and wealth have grown. Or maybe it's the other way around. As inequality has shot up since 1980, we've responded by rationalizing it with an increasingly dominant rhetoric of merits. Either way, 
the rise of emphasis on merit and the rise of inequality correlate. Earlier, I mentioned contributive justice. Distributive justice is needed for fairer, fuller access to the fruits of economic growth and a reduction in inequality. Contributive justice is also needed, this opportunity to contribute meaningfully to others. It's contributive justice that fosters the sense that we're in this together. Human beings require the social recognition and esteem that goes with producing what others need and value. An adequate wage is part of that. It's hard to feel your society really values your work if they won't pay you much for it. But the point isn't just distributing income and wealth. It's that people should get a good income because they're doing work that really matters to other people. The distributive justice and the contributive justice need to go hand in hand. As Sandel writes, the fundamental human need is to be needed by those with whom we share a common life. The dignity of work consists in exercising our abilities to answer such needs. End quote. Robert F. Kennedy understood this. Campaigning in 1968, he said, fellowship, community, shared patriotism, these essential values of our civilization do not come from just buying and consuming goods together. They come from dignified employment at decent pay, the kind of employment that lets a man say to his community, to his family, to his country, and most important to himself, I helped build this country. I am a participant in its great public ventures. We don't hear politicians talking that way much anymore. Meritocracy puts competition at the center of public life instead of putting our shared civic enterprises at the center. Meritocracy also puts that competition at the center of our individual sense of who we are. Meritocracy defines us to each other and to ourselves by what we deserve, what we earn. It teaches us relative disregard for all the range of life that isn't or shouldn't be marketable. It may help to look more closely at the two factors that make up merit or deservingness. Talent, ability, natural gifts on the one hand, effort, hard work, and training on the other. First, let us ask, where did the talent come from? Some of it came from genes. That's luck. Some of it came from childhood experiences. But growing up in the right sort of environment to bring out a given ability is not something the individual made happen. That would also be luck. The other factor, effort, hard work, motivation, training, it isn't always possible to separate that from native talent. But whether you have the opportunities for training, have good coaches available, training facilities, have encouraging people around you, and an environment that yields enough reward for hard work early on so that it develops as a habit, that's all luck. There may also be a genetic component predisposing some people to focused work and delayed gratification. And if so, that would also be luck. If you're lucky enough to find yourself motivated and lucky enough to find yourself talented, then you will be said to have merit. 
The supposed distinction between unearned luck and earned deservingness collapses under scrutiny. And so merit is always a pretense. There are certain spheres of life where this pretense is necessary. When it's time to ask your boss for a raise, you go in and you make the case for how you deserve it. But later, when you're back home, in a moment of calm reflection, you can step back from your work life and you can view it in your spiritual and holistic capacity. And then you can appreciate that really there is no deserving. It's all grace. You just happened to have some skills, including the skill called motivation, and you just happened to live in a world with a market demand for your particular skills, and just happened to have the boss and the company that you do. All luck, all grace. Now, can you hold on to that spiritual truth even as you return again to the sphere of markets and work? It's like the capacity to play a game, parcheesi or gin rummy or chess, while at the same time knowing that you're just playing a game. Or like the capacity to watch an engrossing movie while a part of you retains the consciousness that what you're looking at is just lights on a screen. In the case of games and movies, it's pretty easy. In the case of merit, It takes a special spiritual maturity to resist the tendency to convince ourselves that we somehow deserve our luck. As Max Weber observed back in 1915, the fortunate person is seldom satisfied with the fact of being fortunate. Beyond this, he needs to know that he has a right to his good fortune. He wants to be convinced that he deserves it, and above all, that he deserves it in comparison with others. He wishes to be allowed the belief that the less fortunate also merely experience their due. Good fortune thus wants to be legitimate fortune, end quote. To be able to hold before you unwaveringly, the insight that your good fortune really is just good fortune, really is utterly undeserved. To never forget that for a moment, even when you're in the middle of an intense round of that game called demanding what you deserve, that's a difficult spiritual challenge. I regularly bring myself back to this awareness that it's all grace, that none of it is deserved or earned, But that bit about never forget for a moment is beyond me. I do regularly bring myself back to remembering, but that's because I do regularly forget. This might be your first glimpse of seeing through the illusion of merit. The first time it came to your notice that the distinction between deserving and lucky is illusory. And if so, I urge you to hold on to that. Don't let it slip away. Rest in that new way of seeing, and imagine what it might be like to live that way, with awareness that merit is a fiction, a game you are sometimes called upon to play, but which you recognize isn't real. If you imagine holding that awareness in your mind, what difference would it make to your life? Well, for one thing, If you're sharply aware that it's all luck, then you'll be less caught by surprise when the luck changes. 
Market shifts can make your particular skills no longer in demand. A sudden accident or disease can make your body no longer able to play the violin or hold the scalpel steady or can make your mind less able to concentrate. In the vagaries of fortune, if you, are, if you have thoroughly grasped that your success is not deserved, then you'll be prepared to see that your failure when it comes isn't deserved either. And something else. Not only do you not deserve your failure, but you'll more clearly see that other people don't deserve theirs. Under the meritocratic ethic, my success is my own doing, so other people's failure must be their fault. Meritocracy corrodes commonality. It traps me within the delusion that we aren't in the same boat. It says, I built my boat and you built your boat, so there's no particular reason I need to be concerned if yours is sinking. But if I see my situation as wholly an undeserved grace, then I can imagine a new and harsher grace that might put me in someone else's shoes. Ram Das, after the stroke that left him wheelchair-bound, called it fierce grace. And if I can have that clarity, then my life turns in a different direction. It turns toward a different task. My task is not to outcompete others for the prizes of success and status, nor is it to facilitate my children in outcompeting others. My interest shifts to the prizes available only to the winners. It shifts from the prizes available only to the winners to restoring the dignity of all work. There is a possible world in which everyone, whatever their talents and training, can meaningfully contribute their work to our shared public enterprise and meaningfully contribute their voice to democratic deliberation that forms that enterprise. It will be no easy thing to get there from here. It will take at best several generations to reverse the effects of the last several generations. Meanwhile, here in the microcosm of the congregation, we practice. Week in and week out, we embody a communal life without meritocracy, where we stand together on ground of equality, where everyone can meaningfully contribute to our shared enterprise where we learn together an ever-deepening appreciation of grace and our inherent solidarity. Week in and week out, we are living and demonstrating to the world a better way. Let it be so. Amen.